older I get, the more I, I realize that I have to be able to see what I've written down, and I have to write it down because otherwise I won't remember it. So, <laughs> so here goes. Okay. So for the last few weeks, we've been studying together the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippian church and talking about how and why the gospel compels us to gather around the love of Jesus, even when we disagree. Pastor Paul gave his background to the Philippians and um, also to Paul's deep friendship with them. And then Pastor Britta showed us how uh, Paul saw the Christians or saw Christ at the center of everything, including the relationships that the Philippians had. And how the covenant's logo, you remember the four men in the hot tub with the cross in the middle and then the people on the outside? How that logo uh, demonstrates to us our differences, our separateness, but also how we are tied together in the middle through Christ. And how we need to see others through Christ. And then last week, Pastor Paul talked about the importance of humility and unity as we seek to live a life worthy of the gospel. So this morning, let me begin by reading Philippians 2, 5 through 13, which is our passage for today. But I'm actually going to start reading at uh, verse 1 because I want us to get the context of what we're going to be talking about today. So here goes. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according uh, in order to fulfill his good purpose. Today we're going to be talking about relational unity again. We talked about that last week and we're going to continue on with that because Paul uses the particular passage that we're studying today to demonstrate what he's talking about in the verses before. 
And we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the causes of our disagreements and the Apostle Paul's solution. Paul knows that Jesus considered unity among believers to be critical, both for their own benefit and for the success of the gospel. Before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed to God the Father that his disciples might be one as we are one, I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. That's interesting. Complete unity. Not partial unity, but complete unity. And then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. But developing and maintaining, maintaining unity among a group of people is tough. N.T. Wright, who's one of my favorite theologians, says, bringing together people from radically different backgrounds into a single society is very difficult. It's hard enough if together you believe that Jesus has defeated the powers of evil and that his spirit is given to every believer for the profit of all. It's impossible, frankly, if you don't believe that. Much of the time, the best that we can do is to negotiate with each other and try and come to some sort of consensus, which may mean nothing more than reaching agreement with, with each participant, uh, giving up a little bit of what they wanted, and then gaining a little bit of, of what they wanted, and everybody ending up being grumpy about it. So why do we disagree? Because we're all different. And many of those differences are God-created, and we can't do anything about that. So things like our physical characteristics. We have different desires, different wants, expectations, motivations, understandings, experiences, perspectives, personalities, ethnicities, and so on. Lots and lots of differences. Now, if we're all uniform, the same, it would be much easier to agree with one another. But we're not. And interestingly enough, God doesn't intend us to be the same. But just being different and disagreeing isn't necessarily sufficient for us to become divided and quarrelsome. What often causes the tension in our relationships is the attitudes that lie below the surface differences. The book of James talks about... um, When we seek to gain or retain our own rights, our our privileges, our honors, and benefits at the expense of others, then our wrong desires and motives lead to a kind of a self-centered relationship. And our self-focus blinds us to the perspectives and needs of others. We resist making space at the table because we fear losing our own place and becoming marginalized. And as our disagreements heat up, we get defensive, we feel hurt, we get fearful of losing out, and sometimes we even become violent. Our differences then turn into divisions. With the diversity of the religious, social, and ethnic backgrounds among the early Christians in the churches that Paul planned or planted, it's not surprising that conflict Um, about all sorts of different things seem to be quite common among them. 
They argued about worship, clothing, food, sexuality, spiritual gifts, leadership, theology, and much, much more. Paul's letters to these churches were full of teaching about how to deal with these issues and also full of encouragement to the church members to get along with each other. Paul admonished the the Christians in Ephesus, make every effort, every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You hear that repeated word, one, and the repeated idea of of unity? Unity is very important to Paul. The church at the Greek city of Philippi was probably pretty similar to most of Paul's other churches. It was a mixture of people from the artisan class, which is kind of like the middle class. Um, there, like the jailer who Paul um, shared the gospel with and his family. There were a few Jewish women like Lydia and her household. Uh, there were local Greeks and there were slaves. But what set this church apart from the other churches um, and added to many of the possibilities for conflict was that there probably were some retired Roman soldiers and their families involved with these churches. Because Philippi had been refounded as a Roman colony about 90 years previous to Paul's visits there. And so it was filled with retired soldiers. The Romans had this this habit of whenever they decided they wanted to kind of um, Romanize an area, they would set up a Roman colony, and then they would put retired soldiers there. (laughs) so that nobody would be tempted to rebel in that particular area. So that's Philippi. That's what's going on there. So probably some of these retired soldiers and their families made their way into the church. They heard the gospel, perhaps from Paul, and and became Christians. So these soldiers were rewarded for their service um, with land, a generous one-time pension, and the opportunity to Um, hold administrative offices, and run for public office. So they had worked hard, they fought for Rome, and they actually survived. Not all did. And now they were prominent members of the local society, and they were very proud of the Roman citizenship. And that would be a point of conflict, just in and of itself. From the reports Paul was getting, his friends at Philippi seemed to be losing their initial unity and began bickering and quarreling with each other. At the end of this letter that we'll get to eventually, Paul calls two women leaders, Euodia and Syntyche, to live in harmony with each other and live in harmony with the Lord and asks another leader to help them reconcile their differences. Paul knew that the Philippians were united in Christ. They had become Christians. They shared the comfort and compassion and tenderness of the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit was a real presence in their life. But he also suspected that they lacked the like-mindedness, the love, the unity of the Spirit that should have been uh, theirs as as being children of God. And so in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 2, which Pastor Paul talked about last week, He encourages them to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, 
value of others above yourselves, and then looking to your, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interests of others. But as you know, just telling people to do something or to behave a certain way doesn't necessarily make them do it or even want to do it, especially when tensions are high, when there's a conflict that's happening in your midst. So why would a wealthy, influential, retired Roman soldier look, at, look out for the interests of slaves and the poor people um, in the Philippian congregation? He had it made. He was, he was living the good life as far as he was concerned. He'd worked hard for it. Why shouldn't he pay any attention to the needs of others? And why would Greek merchants, artisans, and slaves care about the interests of the Roman elite, even if they were church members? And these, this Roman elite, by the way, were seen as invaders and oppressors. These were not people that they particularly were interested in helping out unless there was something that they could gain for their own benefit. So how do you get such a diverse group of people with such strong division among themselves to join together to follow Christ in a loving, peaceful, and united way? Paul knew that the Philippians needed more than just moral admonitions. Moral admonitions are nice. They help us understand what needs to be done, but they often don't motivate us to do it. The Philippians needed a compelling model. They needed the model of Christ their Lord and Savior, who demonstrated his, in his human life the self-giving character of God and what true humanness looks like. They needed to share Jesus' way of thinking so that their behavior sprang from their transformed minds and hearts. So Paul says in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. So literally what he's saying here is in your relationships with each other, have this mindset, this mindset that we've been talking about of laying down your life for another, looking out to the interests of others, not doing things for your own selfish gain. Have that sort of a mindset because that was also Jesus' mindset. So Paul points them then to the example of Jesus with a poem. And this poem perhaps was an early hymn or affirmation of faith. We're not sure. We're not sure who wrote it or um, how Paul even came across it. Maybe he wrote it himself. We don't know. But this poem is often called the Christ hymn. And there is a lot of um, deep theology uh, packed into it. There's a lot of... Um, of deep thinking, deep understandings that is packed into this sermon or this hymn. And so we're going to take it apart bit by bit and try and understand what is going on. Why is Paul using this and sharing this with the Philippians? What are the truths that we need to, to be reminded of and that the Philippians needed to be reminded of? So this poem begins by saying, that Jesus was in the very nature God. And some translations have more literally in the form of God. The Greek word morphe is translated as form or nature, and it means 
a thing that is truly and fully expressive of the being that underlies it, which is it's kind of a complicated sentence. But what he was saying is, is when you look at something and you see it, what you're looking at is actually representative of what it is. It's, it's not, it doesn't just look like it, but it really is it as you look at it. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus really and truly and fully was by his nature God. And for a Jewish man in the first century to say that is rather shocking. I mean, this, Paul at this time is, has become a Christian and is, is deeply understanding what this means. But we don't, we don't understand how radical that was for him to say that Jesus is God. That would, that would be unthinkable to most Jewish men in that, at that time period. So this is, this is, Paul just starts off with this by just saying it. He doesn't explain it, he just says it. We read elsewhere in scripture about Jesus' oneness with the Father and his pre-existence as God before coming, becoming human. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that there are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. John 14.10 um, tells us that Jesus tells his disciples, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And then in John 17, 3, Jesus prays, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. There's lots of other examples that I could have shared, but those are ones that really support this idea that Paul is bringing out and maybe explain it a bit more about what it means that Jesus was God. Before he became a human being, he was God and he lived in the presence of his father. So how Jesus uh, can be one God with the father and the Holy Spirit is a deep mystery which Christians have puzzled over for centuries and they've written volumes and volumes about it. But interestingly enough here, Paul doesn't spend any time explaining the Trinity. He just assumes it and moves on. He just says that Jesus was in the very nature of God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. What Paul is more interested in is what Jesus does with this godness. What he, how he behaves. So he continues by saying that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Now that statement would make the Philippians just kind of sit up and take notice. Because in their world, people who had equality with someone else, especially someone very powerful, they used it to all the advantage that they could get. 
so the phrase used to his own advantage translates the word the greek word that can also be um, translated grasped seized stolen grabbed or held on too tightly at all costs in the roman empire of paul's day the roman empire wanted unity among its diverse subjects but only on its own terms it held on very tightly to that power differences were suppressed if they caused problems and rome enforced that unity with the sword in paul's world and in our own we're used to having those on the top top of the, the food chain seek to hold on to their own power and work things to their own advantage to get their own way we have come to expect that people will lord, lord it over others but this grasping and self-referential attitude and action is the very opposite of the humble self-giving behavior that Jesus demonstrated. He didn't consider equality with, with God something to be grasped, to be held on to. Genesis 3, 4 uh, and 4 to 6 tells us uh, that it, that. Did it just go off? Oh, it's back on. That trying to be like God, perhaps grasping to be his equal, was the original temptation for human beings in the Garden of Eden. The serpent lied to Eve, saying, You will not cer certainly die, for God knows that when you, when you eat from, from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so then what did Eve do? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So she and Adam grabbed, they seized, they grasped not only the fruit, but the opportunity to take advantage to gain wisdom and become God's rival. Not surprisingly, Jesus lived, uh, experienced the very same temptation to grasp for his own advantage while being tested by Satan in the wilderness. The tempter challenged him to prove he was the son of God by turning stones in, in, into bread to meet his own needs and to throw himself off the highest point of the temple to test God's protection. A third temptation offered Jesus lordship over the world's kingdoms in exchange for worshiping Satan and betraying his father. Jesus rejected all of these temptations and said, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But Luke 4.13 adds these chilling words. When the devil had finished all these temptations, he left him until an opportune time. So temptation was not just a one-off experience for Jesus. Throughout his ministry at opportune times, he was tempted to self-serve, take advantage of situations, to promote his own benefit at the expense of, his, of other people and also of his father's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, 
You can see this fairly clearly. Jesus prayed to the Father. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In his words, can you hear underneath that temptation, that temptation to bypass the cross, to avoid all the pain and suffering and abandonment and rejection that he knows will come if he obeys the Father? That temptation is in his mind as he prays and as he battles it and rejects it. And then just minutes later, when the soldiers are coming and they're fighting, they're coming to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls out the sword and he whacks away at, at people, Jesus stops him and says, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I'm not going to take the easy way out. I'm going to follow the will of the Father and not seek my own will. Paul says that rather than using using equality with God as something to be held on to tightly, Jesus willingly made himself um, nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant or a slave and being made in human likeness. Now the phrase made himself nothing is often translated as he emptied himself. It's, a, it's that idea of, of giving yourself out, of spending yourself, of pouring yourself out, like a pitcher pouring water out so that there's nothing left in that pitcher. So just as Jesus was really and fully by nature God, Paul says that Jesus voluntarily took on really and fully by nature, becoming a human slave with no rights or advantages. All of his privilege, all of his power in heaven was left behind as he poured himself out to become a human. He willingly and deliberately spent himself to serve his father and others. The night before his crucifixion, he washed the disciples' feet, which was a job for the lowest slave in the, in the household, and, sh- and shocked the daylights out of his, his disciples. They were horrified by that. But that's typical of Jesus. It demonstrated his self-conscious, his conscious self-emptying. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments. He took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. The first humans, Adam and Eve, sought to be equal with God for their own advantage. And that brought conflict and death to themselves and their world. In the great reversal, Jesus chose to give up equality with the Father and become a human. 
He became the prophesied suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, who poured out his life unto death. And so in verse 8, Paul continues saying, And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even unto death, and even death on a cross. So this stress on Jesus' death on a cross would have made the Gentile Christians in this Roman colony extremely uncomfortable. Crucifixion was reserved for insurrectionists and slaves, and it was considered to be the most degrading form of execution. The Roman statement statesman Cicero called crucifixion a most cruel and disgusting punishment and recommended that the very mention of the cross should be removed not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. In other words, don't even think about it or talk about it. Jewish believers would also be very uncomfortable with Paul mentioning the crucifixion because the crucified were believed to be excommunicated from God's covenant and cursed, according to Deuteronomy 21. So in both cultures, dying on a cross, by dying on a cross, Jesus became the lowest of the low. He hit bottom. There was, there was no place lower that he could go. As we think about this, it's important to realize, though, that Jesus' crucifixion was not just an unfortunate accident. Sometimes it's portrayed that way, like things get out of hand and Jesus didn't, couldn't keep things under control and it just worked out that way. Um, and it also wasn't plan B. Sometimes you hear Christians saying that, that when the, the Jewish leaders and other political leaders didn't respond to Jesus' claims of messiahship like they were supposed to, then God had to come up with a plan B so that we would, we'll, we'll just save the world instead of Jesus becoming the political messiah. Um, but Paul doesn't say that. The crucifixion is part of God's plan from the very beginning. It was planned by the all-knowing will of God even before the world was created and foretold by Isaiah and the other prophets. Revelation 13.8 tells us that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Also, contrary to the very lovely song, Above All, which was written by Leonard LeBlanc and Paul Balash, and I do really like this song, just so you know, um, and it's sung by Michael W. Smith. At his crucifixion, Jesus took the fall, not because he thought of me above all, but because he thought of his Father above all. And that's really important. We tend to, to want to see Jesus as doing all this self-giving and stuff for us, which it was. But Paul's emphasis is not on, on his obedience to us to fulfill what we want. The emphasis is on his obedience to the Father and his love for the Father. And because of his love and obedience to the Father, he takes the fall. 
Paul tells us that Jesus consciously obeyed the will of the Father and the plan of the triune God to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Paul then continues in the poem in verse 9, but now the focus shifts. How does God respond to Jesus' self-emptying? Paul says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's giant yes to what Jesus has done. So I have a picture in my mind of one of my seminary professors, Rick Watts, who's an Australian and tends to be rather flamboyant and um, uh, expressive in his the way that he talks about things. And so I have this picture in my mind of him uh, saying what God's response is to Jesus. And it's, yes, that's my boy. That's my boy. That's what my people are supposed to be look like. Yeah, this is what people who love me and love each other look like. You know, just this intensity of, of reaction. And that's what you see here. The Father is saying, because Jesus does this, he's exalted above everything. He's given the highest place of honor. He's given the highest name. There's nothing that's beyond what Jesus receives because of his willingness to become the lowest of the low in obedience to his father. Matthew 23, 12 tells us, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And from the lowest of the low, Jesus is exalted to the highest degree possible. In the Old Testament, the name that is above every name is God's name, Yahweh's name. Yet Paul says that Jesus now has that name and, it's, and has been given that name. In the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, the very verb, the same, the same verb, exalt, is used in Psalm 96.9 to claim that Yahweh, God the Father, is exalted above all gods. Yet, Paul says that now Jesus holds that position. In Isaiah 45, Yahweh declares, I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. And yet... Now God declares that Jesus is the one who must be completely obeyed and acknowledged by everyone. Every knee must bow to the one who is completely obedient to the Father. The Septuagint translates God's personal name, Yahweh, as Lord. And remember that the Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. So for a Greek-speaking Christian like Paul, to say Jesus is Lord implies not that just Jesus is a ruler, but that Jesus is the ruler, the ruler of the universe, God himself. 
In this poem, Paul says that the Father, in his response to Jesus' humble obedient service, shares his divine honors again with the ascended Son. There's no rivalry or competition between them, just mutual love and honoring. Jesus has been restored to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. So what do we do with this example of Jesus that Paul shares through this Christ hymn? What does Paul want the Philippians to do? He says in verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, in you to will and to do in order to fulfill his good purposes. He wants them to continue to obey God. He wants them to keep working out their salvation together, even if it's difficulty. In spite of their um, problems in their relationships with each other, Paul calls the Philippians to follow the model of Jesus and stick with the hard work of seeking to be like-minded have the same love, be one in spirit and mind, value others above themselves, and look out for the intentions and interests of others. He calls us to do the same. You can almost hear the Philippians say, after they've heard this this poem, but but this is really hard. We, We don't know that we can do that. And you're right. It is really hard. It's very difficult. But taking up your cross and following Jesus daily is hard. Jesus reminds us as, as his apprentices with the human, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So the Philippian and our own efforts to reconcile and restore relationships, that's that's not in vain. Our efforts are not in vain because God is at work within us to make it happen, to will and to do his good pleasure, to fulfill his good purposes. It's not up to us. God is at work in us to make this happen. All that we need to do is cooperate. One of my favorite Christmas movies is a wonderful life. <laughs> Somebody else likes that movie too. Um, so the hero is George Bailey, a small town young man with big ambitions and dreams. He wants to get out of Bedford Falls as quickly as possible. But George is always putting himself out, um, out for other people. And it comes with a cost and with a choice. He loses his hearing after saving his brother from an icy pond. After his dad's uh, fatal stroke, George chooses to take over uh, his father's building and loan bank. And he gives his college money to his brother. And he expects that Harry, once he's finished with college, will come back and take over 
the, the uh, building and loan, and then George can go off and, and do whatever he wants. But Harry gets married, and he's offered a great job out of the town. So George decides to stay with the building and loan. Right before his honeymoon, there's a run on the bank. So George does the right thing and chooses to use his honeymoon money to help his customers. And so there's no honeymoon trip. Out of his slim income, he gives a friend, Violet, some money to travel to New York so that she can start a new life. And then he turns down a very profitable and attractive job offer from his evil nemesis, Mr. Potter, because he knows that the community's welfare depends upon the building and loan staying afloat. At the climax of the movie, during his own crisis, George wishes he had never been born. But he's shown by an angel, Clarence, how his looking out for and putting the interests of others above himself in the lives of the people that he loves and cares for in his community, he, he sees how that has made an incredibly significant impact on their lives, a big difference in their lives. And so the movie then ends with the community joyfully gathering around him and rallying around him in his time of need. He needs money, and one by one, people come up and put a $5 bill in a basket or a $10 bill or their kids' pennies from their, their penny jars or whatever because George has given so much to them. Now they're giving back to him. So truly, George, who humbled himself, and spent himself for others, was exalted. Now, you and I aren't Jesus, and we're not the Philippians, and we're not even George Bailey. But we're, we are called to be Jesus' apprentices and live out his mindset in our own situations and relationships. Some of those may be easy, some of those may be difficult. But we're called to live it out, especially in the troubling and painful ones, and to live it out with each other. So as we come to our time of reflection, let's listen for what God may be saying to us this morning through the Christ hymn. So I came up with some questions that might be helpful to get you thinking about it as we take this time of silence together. Who am I in conflict with and why? What attitudes might be underneath the surface issues? Whose welfare is Jesus calling me to sacrifice myself for? Who needs me to, to step out and join them in their world, to step out of my world into theirs? What honors privileges, rights, what do I grasp after? What do I seek to hold on to for my own advantage? And what might Jesus want me to do with that? And then last, what do I need from the Father so that I can trust him like Jesus did 
and be willing to lay my, down my life like he did for the Father and for others.